Hello and welcome everyone. Share my screen just a second. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go yeah. ahead. My bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. And you can send it to um, MEI events and the, or as well. Or you can share it yourself too, I think. I should people. be able to share it. Yeah. So. Okay. 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 Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you everyone for joining us today for our inaugural session of the Inter-Asian Book Series organized by the Arabia Asia Cluster here at the Middle East Institute. Um, before we start off into our session today, I want to just give everyone a little background about what led to us planning on, on this series. Um, I mean, at Arabia Asia Cluster and, we've, and people who are sort of more familiar with what we do, we have been talking about inter-Asian methods for a long time. And during our discussion, we realized that one of the issues is that while you get a lot of people um, criticizing the, the area studies uh, model as it stands. So people saying, look, you know, Middle Eastern studies, it's a colonial geography, it's arbitrary, it doesn't work. But what we get to hear a lot less of is alternate models. So we get to hear a lot of like critiques that, that tear down the existing system, but less, less sort of, you know, uh, versions of, of that kind of build up in alternate versions. So, and this is a problem that exists, you know, within the critical humanities beyond this problem, you know, it's, it's easier to say, you know, that we need to provincialize Europe and then, you know, go on to talk for 200 pages about European, you know, philosophers. Um, <laughs> so, so we thought we'd give, you know, like Singapore being an, 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 an old place that kind of in many ways um, is um, it, it, it like brings together inter-Asia both in its population, in its history, in its culture, and in many ways. So it's like a it's like a cosmopolis of of Asia. Um, so I, I thought this would be a good place to bring together scholars from around this world, enabled by the Zoom technology, where we can get reach out to people, different people, to bring them together on very concrete discussions about how to actually go about doing the hard work of doing inter-Asian research and what that actually entails. Um, so I'm very glad to have to kick off this session with Dr. Arunab Ghosh, uh, who is an associate professor at the history department at Harvard University. Uh, we will, of course, be talking specifically about his latest book, Making It Count Statistics and Statecraft in the Early People's Republic of China, published by Princeton University uh, earlier, I think last year. Um, so if any of you have not you know, gotten a chance to read it, I hope this session would also encourage you to do so and get to it in more detail, because the book really um, is a wonderful, it takes a deep dive into the political, methodological, and philosophical debates within a specific community of Chinese statisticians in, in post-war early communist China. Dr. Ghosh paints the social world of a vibrant network of experts who as part of the government statistics board were at once engaged in deep abstract thinking and about uh, plugged in with international debates on statistical methods, but at the same time, managing the political demand and exigencies of the state. Um, and, and, and through that process, through this debate between the abstract debate and the practical, they really try to fundamentally remake both the state and society, or at least attempt to rethink how to manage state and societies. Um, what emerges out of this deep dive is, is that we emerge out of with, with a very fresh insight into 
uh, a very basic fundamental divide within contemporary social sciences about aggregate data uh, with its, you know, and, and in-depth contextual knowledge. And this, this kind of division runs across the book. And what we get from the book is that far from being, this debate far from being limited to the global north was actually very hot and deeply contested within, uh, within, within, uh, within China, within early modern China and the global south more broadly, uh, where different models were being debated and discussed and implemented. And, and with, with those different statistical or methodological approach, you really get to see different ideas of what a state can do and how it should function. Um, so, and, and what Dr. Gorsh does is that he presents both the roads taken along with those that were not taken or that were taken for a little while and then turned back on. Um, so he, he brings, he's put all of these, these at the same level and really opens up for us different possibilities, asks us to uh, think alongside these roads not taken, the, the, the specificity of the roads that we actually took, the specificity of the decisions that we made in governing and managing states through a very specific kind of specific methodological approach to statistics as well. With that, I, I'm going to um, give it, give the floor to Dr. Ghosh. Uh, if, sorry, I'm just gonna lay out the format for people as well. Um, so we're gonna start off with a brief slide presentation by Dr. Ghosh um, that gets sets up or that sets, gets a lay the platform for what the argument at the heart of the book is. And from there, we can go into more in-depth discussion about um, about way about about more like about both the philosophical underpinnings of these uh, of 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 these statistical models, as well as kind of the history of China, and perhaps even debates about uh, contemporary uh, on on contemporary politics and how that leads us to think differently about you know with COVID times statistics really have been at the center of this contemporary crisis. Uh, and then in the end, maybe if we have time, we can go into more methodological discussion pertinent to the series about how to go about doing inter-Asian research. So thank you so much, Dr. Ghosh, for joining us today. Uh, great, thank you so much. I mean, you, you have done such a, a fantastic job of, of summarizing the book. I feel we should just dive right into the conversation in some ways, but, uh, but uh, you know, as we discussed, maybe I will, I will share some brief slides. Uh, I, had, I had sort of a, a Presentation planned, uh, but then uh, listening to Amin right before we began, talk of you know the interest in sort of doing a more sort of interactive um, sort of conversation as opposed to just a presentation. What I'll try and do is I'll, I'll condense it and try and sort of rush through it, give you some images, give you some uh, some sense of the, the sort of the key uh, sort of some of the key sort of driving arguments, the key driving assumptions uh, that informed the work that the statisticians in the 1950s were doing. Uh, and then and then we can proceed to the conversation. So I'll try and be as brief as possible. Uh, but before I dive in, uh, just a quick word of thanks to, to Amim, to the Middle East Institute, uh, to, to Sharon uh, for inviting me. And I'm delighted to, to be here and to be able to share this work, especially as, as Amim mentioned, given that Singapore is, I think, at the heart in some ways, both intellectually, but also geographically, to so much of this kind of interaction. Um, interaction uh, you know, we have a long history of it, but I think what we're discovering more recently is how important the 20th century history of these interactions also is. Uh, so, so I'm delighted. I've, I've been to NUS before, and I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I can't be there in person, but uh, but I look forward to to, to visiting again uh, soon. So let me quickly share my uh, my screen. 
and uh, dive in. So can everyone see the full screen? Can you confirm or? Yes, yes. I yeah, think. okay, great. So as, as Amin uh, very, very kindly noted, uh, I published a book last year called Making It Count Statistics and Statecraft in the Early People's Republic of China. And at a very sort of basic empirical level, uh, what, the, what the book uh, and what I was trying to do is really understand how did a new state that emerged that was uh, clearly aligned uh, ideologically along sort of socialist and Marxist principles, uh, which means that it, it, it really uh, approached uh, the economy, approached the society and culture uh, uh, in a sort of in a planned way. So any kind of change that was going to be implemented would be through planned means. How does that kind of state even get about, get, go, go about knowing the country quantitatively? Because the assumption really is, if you're going to plan things, you need data to plan, and presumably you need good data to plan well. Uh, so that became a sort of a very simple empirical question. In 1949, the PRC is established, the communists come to power, they want to fundamentally change China through planned means. How can they do it if they don't have the data, or what kind of data do they have? So that was sort of the, the, the initial motivating question. And uh, as, as Amin suggested, through that, I, I get into debates about state capacity, about state-society relations, about statecraft. Uh, about histories of socialism, the different kinds of socialism that sort of manifest themselves, um, histories of planning, uh, and of course, uh, histories of data. And I think in terms of uh, uh, the, the inter-Asia focus of this book series, uh, also on, on sort of Cold War science and the ways in which we should understand Cold War science. And I'll try and uh, end with some remarks on that. Uh, so uh, I had a I had a potted uh, version of a talk. I'm not going to do that. As I said, I'll just run through some slides. And uh, I thought it'd be nice, given again the interracial context, to drop us in uh, I guess what's known as in media's res, right, in the middle of the story. And in the middle of the story really is uh, December of 1956, when uh, the Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai is on a visit to India. You know, it's a, it's a month long visit, and he's traveling all over. But in Calcutta, when uh, in December on December 9th, he visits the Indian Statistical Institute and ends up spending a lot more time than was originally allocated for that visit. Uh, and here in this photograph, you can see him uh, uh, being given a tour and the, the, the gentleman with his finger point, pointing at the machine is, is the Indian statistician PC Mahalanobis who uh, established the Indian Statistical Institute in the 1930s in Calcutta. And by the 1950s, the ISI was one of the, uh, globally one of the leading centers for both statistical innovation, theoretical innovation, uh, but also application, applying statistics to a whole range of uh, sort of social science research, and in particular in contributing to uh, planning in India. So John Lai visits, he's deeply impressed by what he sees. Uh, he ends up spending a lot more time there. And as he's leaving, he has a fascinating conversation with Malinobis where he says, um, I'm really excited about what you're doing. And uh, we in China would like to learn more about what you're doing. And in particular, what he's interested in is uh, large-scale random sampling, which is a particular kind of technology that's very new in the 1950s. New in particular, not as a theoretical sort of possibility, but new in terms of a practical sort of field-tested method of gaining uh, social data. So gaining data about large-scale social phenomena in a, in, a time, uh, in a timely manner, in an accurate manner, and in a very cost-effective manner. And the ISI is at the forefront globally at this time of this kind of technology. So the reason I want to start with this uh, uh, this image and this uh, this visit is really to to suggest to you actually that this is an aberration in terms of how we understand 1950s Chinese history. The fact that Joan Lai is so interested in essentially what are cutting edge scientific methods in India, and uh, give you a quick sort of background. 
up to about 1956, the Chinese had actually been consciously rejecting any kind of over overture from India or from other countries that were not uh, clearly in sort of what you can think of as a socialist bloc or in particular close to the Soviet Union. Uh, in, in, 19, in the early 50s itself or right after 1949, the Chinese had decided to follow the Soviet model of industrialization quite closely. And that in some ways precluded these kinds of, uh, uh, of you know, other kinds of exchanges, other kinds of, of interactions. Um, and, but I want to stress that it's not purely sort of an ideological commitment. It's not purely a political commitment. Uh, there were hints to why this didn't make sense even as early as 1951 when the Chinese sort of very reluctantly attended uh, the 27th session of the International Statistical Institute uh, in New Delhi uh, in 1951. And the economist Di Chaobai, who was sort of delegated or deputed to attend, he was already part of a cultural delegation in India at that time. And he said that he was told basically go and spend a day or two there. And he, he, he left a, a written statement. And, and this is an excerpt from the statement where he said, we are of the opinion that the theories, methods, and systems in connection with statistics adopted in a country cannot but be closely linked with the social system of the country in question. So this provides a little bit of a clue as to what's going on. It's not simply oh, we are in, a, in, in sort of the socialist camp and therefore we are not going to align with, you know, the, the India who, whose politics or, or its, whose position in the world is, is unclear whether it's, it's still part of the imperial, former imperial world and so on. Uh, but there is a, a, a deep-seated debate going on about what is the nature and definition of statistics itself. Now, what happens over the course of the 50s is, and I'll, I'll pro pro provide a very brief sense of, sense of this in a moment, uh, is that uh, that, that uh, uh, I, I give a sense of that what, what that, what those principles are and how those principles are challenged. Uh, but what else happens is in, in the process of them being challenged is by 1956, there is an exposure to what's going on in India. And I think an important moment in that is this uh, Indian Planning Commission delegation that visits in 56, and for the first time gives Chinese statisticians a sense of what is going on in India. Uh, so this becomes an opening and, and Joan Lai's visit uh, follows later that, that year. And very quickly, so I just, I'll just sort of uh, spell this out. You have a series of exchanges that follow. So close on the heels of Joan Lai's visit, you have uh, a Chinese delegation that spends over a month in uh, Calcutta at the Indian Statistical Institute. And here are some, you know, the, the gentleman reading is, is Wang Sofa. I'll show a photograph of him momentarily. He's the deputy head of the, one of the deputy heads of the State Statistics Bureau at that time. Uh, and he's accompanied by uh, three other members. They're ostensibly there to attend the 25th celebration, the 25th anniversary of the founding of the Indian Statistical Institute, but they end up staying for a month and they're really focused on studying large scale random sampling. They go back, they try and uh, promote uh, in a major way the adoption of large scale random sampling in China, uh, in particular in the agricultural sector, something that had been, uh, as, I, as I briefly alluded to, uh, a real anathema up to that point. Uh, this is followed. Shortly after Wang Sewa's return, uh, he also begins to engineer along with his boss, Shui Muqiao, and you can see the two of them on the extreme right here, uh, Wang Sewa on the extreme right and Shui Muqiao next to him. They begin to engineer uh, plans to, to try and bring PC Mahalanobis over to, Cal over to Beijing uh, for an, an extended range of discussions about large-scale sampling. I won't go into the details, but Mahalanobis spends about three weeks uh, over the summer of 1957 in, in, uh, in China. He meets with a range of people, delivers a whole range of lectures, all kinds of discussions. Uh, and this is a, an image of, I think, right before his departure when, when Joan Lai hosts him uh, for dinner. So again, in the interest of time, I'm, I'm, I'm going rather rapidly through these. Uh, so, so far, I've talked about these three fairly important sort of dramatis personae. You have Wang Sekhua, who uh, leads the delegation in 56, who is a major proponent of uh, uh, the adoption of large-scale random sampling. His boss, Rui Muqiao, 
also is very open to this idea by 56, 57, and the person their their main interlocutor is is PC Malonobis. And again, in discussion, if if there's interest, I'm happy to you know talk more about them and their their sort of trajectories in some ways. Uh, the final important round in these exchanges that happens is uh, over the course of the 1958 calendar year, where two young statisticians from China spend the entire year at the ISI uh, studying large-scale random sampling techniques. And uh, the idea really is that they will they will learn these things and then come back and train a, a whole new generation of statisticians at the State Statistics Bureau in China. And again, the focus is, as I said, on, on, on large-scale uh, random sampling. So that's sort of uh, the, 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 in, in very brief, almost schematic terms, the exchanges that I map out that are fundamentally iteration. And maybe at the end or in discussion, I can talk about what makes them especially interesting, I think. Uh, but for me, discovering the story was really useful because it allowed me to actually appreciate uh, what was going on within China and what, how, how in some ways, uh, how much of an aberration, how cataclysmic this kind of exchange might have appeared to a lot of stat statisticians at that time, because they went so much against the received wisdom at that point, or so much against, received wisdom is probably the wrong word, so much against the very conscious choices that had been made about how to define statistics and how to, how to, how to compute statistical work. So there is, uh, to go back to the early 50s and give you a sense of what this was and, and, and what is going on with an understanding of statistics, this is Li Fuchun, who was the deputy head of the Central Finance and Economics Committee in 1951, who provides a, a sort of a riff on the, the Di Chabai quote I shared with you a short while earlier, where he says, in the past, China was a semi-colonial, semi-feudal country. Strictly speaking, it did not possess any statistics worth speaking of. Statistics in old China was learned from the Anglo-American bourgeoisie. This kind of statistics cannot serve as a, a weapon. It is unsuitable for the task of managing and supervising the, the country. We need to build a new statistics for a new China. So, you know, you see both the, the kind of larger politics as it's, as it's playing out, as the Cold War is taking shape, but also actually uh, enough here to say that what we're doing is actually fundamentally different as an enterprise. Uh, and so what did he mean? In order to understand what he meant and in order to understand what the stakes were, uh, I want to sort of sketch out what, you know, I try and sort of, explain as sort of the three broad approaches to ascertaining social fact in the 1950s. And arguably, these are the three broad approach, uh, approaches to argue, uh, assessing or ascertaining social fact and even in the present or at any point in time, right? So you have one mode is the ethnographic mode, which again, several social sciences, sociology, anthropology, historians, they use extensively, right? But this really relies on the, uh, the, the authority that is gained by the individual researcher being present within the phenomena that they are studying, right? So your personal experience of the things that you're talking about is absolutely crucial to an ethnographic mode of ascertaining social fact. Again, in the interest of time, I won't belabor this, uh, but we can talk more about it in discussion. Uh, so you have the ethnographic mode, then you have another mode of, of, of ascertaining social fact, which I, which I label exhaustive, which really is about going out and counting everything that you need, whatever you, know, you want to count, but counting every instance of that. So this in, in, in simple terms is, is exhaustive enumeration, right? Uh, the census method. Uh, and, and this becomes, the reason I have it highlighted is because this becomes the, uh, both the de jure and the de facto means adopted in the early 1950s. And I'll give you, a, a, in a moment, I'll explain why. The third is, is stochastic or, or randomized approaches, right? Which don't, which say that neither the ethnographic nor the exhaustive method is really ideal, but what we need to do is apply some kind of randomized approach that allows us to get, and the claim is that through a randomized approach, uh, we will get actually a much, much more accurate sense of social reality. So where, where is this distinction and where is this, uh, this emphasis on the exhaustive mode, the desire to count everything, uh, 
uh, every unit of whatever that we need to count coming from. Uh, in very simple terms, uh, it comes from uh, a real definitional debate about the nature of social reality and what statistics is supposed to study. So what, what Chinese statisticians are doing, and they're in dialogue with Soviet statisticians at this point, because this is also very much the dominant mode of approaching statistics in the Soviet Union, is that they say that, well, statistics is not a universal science, it's not a natural science, it's a social science. It's a social science meant to study social relations, so individuals and their activities. And in, in so doing, what they're saying is therefore, the, the, kind, the laws that operate in the natural world or the laws that are universal are not the laws that operate in the social world. And in particular, the law that they're most concerned about, or not the law, but the, the principle that they're most concerned about has to do with questions of chance and uncertainty. So here, what they're doing is essentially going back to a fairly, one could argue, reductive reading of Marx in certain places, where Marx himself says that the natural and the social world are distinct, and you cannot study them the same way. There are different sets of laws for the social world, different sets of laws for the natural world. And of course, if you, again, continue in this, in this mode, then uh, you can follow Marx's teleological progression to say that, well, we know how history is going to unfold, or we know how the future is going to unfold, rather. We are all progressing through different stages to eventually socialism and then eventually communism. So they take this and push it further to say, therefore, uncertainty, randomness, and chance have really no place in the social world. Uh, what you have in the social world are various kinds of laws, the laws of production, uh, you know, you have class analysis and things like that, but you don't have uncertainty. If you don't have uncertainty, then you can't really use those kinds of methods that are based on uncertainty or chance or randomness or probability uh, to devise methods for ascertaining social fact. Uh, so, you know, once you accept the initial premises, it's a very, logically, it's a very consistent set of, uh, uh, set of arguments. But what it does is it breaks down, and this is a sort of a, a simple table where I try and sort of summarize uh, these distinctions. What it does is it creates a, div a, a divide between statistics as is, as is understood by most other parts of the world, where they don't make this strong divide between uh, uh, a social science and a natural science. Uh, and then what, what you do see in, uh, in, in China and the Soviet Union. So very quickly, what this means is there's no chance in the social world when you look at social statistics, only laws that can be ascertained. And the really the best way to proceed is to count everything exhaustively. The best count is the complete count, right? So what this means is a reliance on methods of exhaustive enumeration, uh, periodic reports, uh, typical sampling, and so on. Again, if there's interest, I can come back to this table here in discussion. Uh, very quickly, then, what this means uh, on a more concrete level methodologically is that you, you end up with a, a system that privileges exhaustive enumeration. Uh, it's known as the complete enumeration periodical statistical periodical report system. Um, uh, that's the translation from the Chinese. Uh, and then on occasion, you are also using one-time censuses or you're using essentially non-randomized non survey sampling, so the ethnographic mode of some sort or the other. You know, <clears throat> and there are various different ways to think about it typical sampling, quota sampling, purposive sampling, and so on. Uh, again, very quickly, what this means is by the 1950s, you have to essentially construct, if you're counting everything exhaustively, you have to construct a massive system uh, that is basically a, a vast nested tree with Beijing at the top, the State Statistics Bureau at the top, and then provincial bureaus, county level offices, and, and um, offices at the village or cooperative level. And I've given you a sense of what the scale of the numbers is, and the claim by 1956 that there are 200,000 full-time statistical cadre working. And of course, you have many more who are part-time part employees. <clears throat> 
There are two other things I want to remind people of that are crucial to understanding uh, both economic activity, planning, and the ways in which statistical uh, activity was taking place, uh, which is that there was during this period a tremendous emphasis on material production over service-based activities. Uh, this again had to do with the nature of the socialist economy and how they were measuring. So this is something that doesn't change until actually, for those of you who are familiar with this history would know probably until the late 80s and early 90s when both the Soviet Union and the PRC switch over from the material product system of accounting for economic production to the uh, system of national accounts, which is what the UN had been using, which tries to balance uh, both material production along with service, the service industry. Uh, so, but, but this has implications for how data is collected. If you're only privileging material physical objects that are being produced, then that generates certain kinds of incentives. The other uh, important sort of trend that colors uh, the way in which statistical work takes place is an overwhelming emphasis on, on industrial production uh, at the expense of uh, agricultural production. And this is sort of a very conscious desire to industrialize in a specific way by focusing on heavy industries. And in order to do so, agriculture is really seen as primarily a source of surplus, surplus that can be invested into heavy industry to promote heavy industrialization. What this means, of course, is that industrial data is emphasized, agricultural data, which they need, tends to suffer. It also suffers because the agricultural sector is so much larger, so much more dispersed, um, geographically, climatically, uh, in so many other ways. So there's a real lopsided nature to the way in which data, the, the quality of data emerges. Um, and I'll, I'll skip this and maybe we can come back to the, uh, this in discussion. I'll, I briefly want to suggest some of the problems that emerge. So you have, you know, the, the kinds of uh, the, the emphasis on industry, the emphasis on the material products leads to a whole range of problems uh, by, by the 1950s, 56, 57, precisely the time when the exchanges uh, with, uh, with India begin. Uh, and some of these, you know, you can summarize as a, a tremendous amount of overproduction of data, partly because you're incentivizing the production of tables themselves. Uh, there is a tremendous problem with incommensurability. So, you know, you have, uh, if you don't have standardized units, if you don't have standardized, other kinds of standardization and different levels of the system are producing different kinds of data, then very quickly, there's no sense. Uh, it's very difficult to make sense of, of, of what has actually been produced. And overproduction and incommensurability sort of combine in some ways to then, of course, generate tremendous delays. So there's uh, the, the reports that I've read as, you know, constantly complain about these issues. Uh, and there's a, there's a wonderful phrase that basically suggests that most of these reports are useless at the moment of creation. There's sort of a complete frustration, you know? So you can produce them or you cannot produce them. It makes no difference to us because in the end, what, what is in them is absolutely worthless. Uh, and in some ways, the one way in which I try and articulate what is happening here is, is the emergence of a particular kind of uncertainty principle to, 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 to you know, sort of borrow from, from Werner Heisenberg himself, you know, this is data's uncertainty principle, which really is this tension between accuracy and timeliness that emerges very clearly. If you need accurate data, then often it's gonna be late. If you provide data in a timely fashion, then you're always worried about its accuracy, right? And this tension is something, again, that as, as Amin was suggesting about contemporary issues is very much around with us today. How do we balance, uh, balance these two, uh, two things? Uh, what's interesting is that in 1957, Shermu Chiao, the director of the SSB, actually comes out and, and adjudicates on this tension. And he says, in order for the leading authorities to understand the situation, research questions, and decide on policies, they frequently need reference data on a timelier basis. Such data need not possess a high degree of accuracy or be comprehensive, but it must be supplied in a timely fashion. So this is an interesting moment where it suggests that this tension is being so viscerally felt, but the response is really to say, give us the data, no matter how imprecise it is. What it does, of course, is it opens the, uh, it, uh, you know, the, 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 the dams are, are um, uh, the gates are open now for 
all kinds of estimation to be further provided, which leads to uh, a, a whole round of essentially data becoming more and more removed from certain kinds of ground realities that they're trying, uh, that they're trying to, to mimic. So this is the situation in 1957, which is precisely when these exchanges with India really become uh, an important way to perhaps try and solve this problem, this, this over-reliance on exhaustive enumeration and this particular mode of thinking about uh, the distinction between the natural world and the social world. Again, in discussion, I'm happy to talk about what the how the Indian statisticians understood this distinction and 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 sort of how people like Wang Sapa, Mucha were responding to it. Um, but I'll try. And, I want to sort of conclude very quickly uh, with with a quick coda on what happens afterwards. So I, you know, to return to this slide where I talked about these three modes. Uh, in some ways, by 1958, you've had both a, a, a sort of a major investment in the exhaustive mode, a dalliance with the stochastic mode. But what happens in 1958 is that you see both of these modes get rejected in favor of a, a fundamentally ethnographic mode of doing social, of collecting statistical data. And a lot of this has to do with the sort of changing political currents surrounding the Great Leap Forward, which is really this utopian kind of, it's, it's, it, it's in lieu of the second five-year plan in China, and it's a sort of a very utopian approach to economic planning, economic organization, as well as social organization. Uh, that uh, that that fundamentally rejects. So the aim is to to sort of surpass uh, the UK steel production uh, in 15 years and and so on. Uh, but what it does is it completely breaks this uh, you know that system that I spoke of from Beijing down this pyramidical uh, system of uh, of reporting uh, of periodical reports and replaces it essentially with uh, an ethnographic mode where as the economy itself becomes atomized into communes. Uh, the commune then becomes the sole uh, uh, source of statistical data, and the data that is collected has to be collected through ethnographic means. Again, in Q&A or in discussion, I can, I can describe what the shift is, but again, it's a theoretical move that's being made. It's not simply a rejection of the exhaustive mode because the politics have changed. Now there's a theoretical argument being made that the only way you can ascertain truth, social truth, is by being on the ground, by experiencing things personally. And for inspiration, they're going back to uh, some of Mao's writings from the late 1920s, in particular, his 1927 report uh, of an investigation into the peasant movement in Hunan, which becomes sort of a founding text for this, um, this new mode or new method of ascertaining social fact. Uh, I won't go into the details, but of course it has implications for uh, how data is collected and implications for the famine that follows from 1959 to 62, which um, you know, by conservative estimates, um, Caused at least 30 million, 30 million deaths. So just very quickly, and, and I'll just I'll just mention these because maybe we'll, we'll cover them in conversation. Um, but uh, some of the ways in which I think uh, some of the things that I'm in dialogue with that I'm hoping to sort of uh, engage people with or or, or, uh, or themes that are that are uh, embedded in the book, of course, is the thinking about planning and the place data and facts play in planning. Uh, and then specifically in understanding the nature of planning in China in the 1950s. And one of the things that emerges is this the sense that there were copious facts that were generated, but the state remained poorly informed in many ways, right? So there's this interesting disjuncture that emerges. Uh, the other important thing, uh, and this uh, relates, I think, to contemporary discussions also, especially with regard to China, but more broadly in this uh, age of COVID, is, is manipulation of data and how that happens. Uh, and, and, you know, the suppression of data that's not, uh, that the state or any other institution is not comfortable sharing and, and how, those, how, those, how that um, suppression or manipulation is achieved. Uh, what I find in the in, in in the book and in doing the research is uh, another sort of another sort of source for the ways in which data can be biased that is not really about this kind of late stage manipulation but has to do with essentially um, 
starting assumptions or your found, you know, founding principles. And those also generate interesting path dependencies as, uh, as the reliance on, on, uh, on exhaustive enumeration did in the 1950s. So I think disentangling or disaggregating the ways in which data is produced is extremely important in understanding them, uh, both how useful data can be, but also how problematic data can be. So again, I think a lesson that's very valuable to, for today. Uh, very briefly, also the, the few other, the other points, uh, one of the things that I'm really trying to do um, is, is, is disaggregate the history of quantification of statistics as it has been understood for, uh, for a lot, you know, what is sort of the, the dominant understanding, which really is the rise of a kind of probabilistic way of thinking about, uh, about our world. Uh, this is, a, this is a sort of a revolution that takes place starting in the early modern world, but really becomes a feature of everyday life by the late 19th century and especially into the 20th century. And what I find is that as late as the 1950s, although you have a shared sense that data is tremendously valuable and transformative for any kind of uh, state making, any kind of uh, social engineering, uh, what the methods appropriate for that kind of, uh, for those goals are, can actually diverge spectacularly. So it's not just that the probabilistic revolution in some ways is dominant. You see actually major divergences, a major contestation in the post-49 world, uh, post-45 world as well. So I think that there are interesting things to think about in terms of both the convergences, convergences regarding data enthusiasm, but then the divergences in terms of methods, in terms of assumptions. Um, and then, uh, Finally, you know, um, um, thinking about interracial, what I began with, uh, the, the example of, of statistics and the China-India exchanges, I think, is, is a really interesting instance of what my, my, one might call interracial, what might call South-South uh, technological exchange, that's happening at what, that is, that is engaging with the kind of technology that is cutting edge at that time. In the 1950s, large-scale random sampling is a new, exciting technology all over the world. And the Indian Statistical Institute, as one of the major centers for this kind of research, is drawing people from uh, the US, Western Europe, but also the Soviet Union and the Socialist Bloc, and then by 1956 and 57, China as well, uh, to try and understand what these methods are. So it's, it's a kind of uh, a scientific exchange that is not derivative, it's not second order, which is you know, typically how we have understood a lot of the history of Cold War science, where you have the Soviet Union, the US as these nodes, and I'm, I'm speaking of them as representative, right? The socialist bloc and, and, and the Anglophone, perhaps the Western Europe and America as these nodes from which all scientific and te technological knowledge uh, emanates or disseminates. And then these other countries are adopters and, 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 and so on. So this is an interesting sort of counterpoint to that model. And my, my suspicion is that the more we search, more instances we'll find of other interesting things that are going on uh, that will paint a very different picture of how we think about post-World War II uh, to scientific networks. Uh, so I think there's a lot of interesting research going on in this area. Some of, some of my ongoing work is also in this area, and I'm happy to talk about some of the new work that I've done in this connection. I'll stop there because I know you want to talk about, I mean, you want to talk about contemporary relevance anyway. So I'll stop there and we can maybe leave that for discussion. Sorry, I was hoping to take about 20 minutes. I've taken 30, uh, but I'll, 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 I'll stop there. Thank you so much for listening.